This is Luke 8, 22 through 25. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mary Margaret. Uh, Good morning. Uh, If you still don't get it, uh, it's an interesting passage that we happen to be in uh, this week. Um, I just want to acknowledge that uh, regardless of how well this sermon goes, uh, you will probably still have questions um, that's, what, that's what tragedy and trauma do. Uh, they rile up questions. And I want you to know a couple things. One, uh, Jesus uh, nor Midtown are afraid of those questions. Uh, but I, I, I can assure you that this, this text may not answer all of your questions, but I can also assure you that this text um, will show us who Jesus is. Uh, and that's the hope of why we gather, that we would see Jesus, even if we still have questions um, and so please uh, journey with us, not only in this uh, passage, but in this season of, of cleanup and of restoration and of uh, trauma and of recovery um, and of aid and of helping and all those things that um, all along the way we, we, are, uh, we are longing to see Jesus, even if that means we may have questions that never get answered. Um, we we want to see Jesus. And so that's what we're doing in this series. That's why we actually began the whole series in the book of Luke this semester is we're journeying through the book of Luke that we might see Jesus. We want to we see him. We want to know him. We want to adore him. We want to we stand more in awe of him than we currently do. Even if, that's, if you've never done that and you're going on that journey for the first time of who is this Jesus, or even if you've done it for the millionth time and you're longing to know more of Jesus We believe here there's no better way to see more and know more and adore more of Jesus than through his word and how he's revealed himself in his word. And so we're looking at these stories, these parables, these miracles, and trying to get a a fuller understanding of who this Jesus is. And so the, the irony or providence, again, depending on your theology, the irony or providence of this passage, please, please know it is not lost on us that there are a lot of people hurting in this city. There are a lot of people who are forever changed in this city because of the storm of this week. That is all very um, much a part of even us walking through this passage. We're not preaching this passage and ignoring what went on in this city. We're actually preaching through this passage uh, knowing what went on in this city. It actually adds to the tension and potentially adds to the comfort that we could experience as we walk through this passage on this week. So today's story is uh, one of the shortest in Scripture about Jesus. It's four verses. Um, it is actually mentioned in three of the four Gospels, and it's, it's short in all uh, of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that it appears in. Um, it punches above its weight class, to use the boxing analogy, because I know some of y'all love boxing. Uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a short story that actually carries a bunch of depth. Its brevity does not limit its depth. And so it's actually, its brevity 
adds to the depth because each word of Jesus, each, in, each action of Jesus, even though we don't get a whole lot of airtime, it, it is swinging a huge hammer. He's swinging a huge axe to try to take down um, a, a certain set of trees potentially in his disciples' hearts. We're going to see this. We're going to see all that happens. But as a brief recap um, of, the, of this very short story, I'll make the recap longer than the story. Is that helpful? Um, the, the, the storm uh, rolls into the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is notorious uh, for storms. There's a cleft on the mountains on the south edge of the Sea of Galilee, and that cleft allows for winds to swoop in every day coming down into the valley, coming down off the top of the mountains, and storms are riled up just about every day on the Sea of Galilee. And so these experienced professional fishermen would have grown very um, routine with a storm. This would, this would have been, they would have been numb to it. This is another storm. We do this every day. We're not afraid of these storms. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very adamant that these professional sailors and fishermen are terrified. And so for someone who sees a storm every day, for them to be afraid means that this was one heck of a storm. It's like on the plane when there's turbulence, I watch the flight attendant because if they're scared, I'll get scared. But if they're not scared, we're cool because they do this every day. And so the litmus test for how scared should we be is based on people who do this every day. They're terrified. And they go and find Jesus and he's sleeping during the storm. And they wake him up and they scream at him. They plead with him to do something, and Jesus says a few words. Luke doesn't record his words, but the other gospel writers do. And the elements of nature stop completely. They obey him, and they are immediately calm. And so Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. He rebukes nature. He puts them in their place, so to speak. And then he turns, and with one rhetorical question to the disciples, he rebukes them. There's two rebukes from Jesus in this passage, one to nature and one to the disciples. And what is revealed about Jesus here, something happens in this story, we'll talk about this, that after this question, after this miracle and after this question, the ending of this story is, is, is fascinating. The, the disciples marvel at him, and they actually leave the story afraid. We'll talk about that. So that's the summary. And in this, overarchingly, there are two main revelations about Jesus. There's, there's this, this four verses and there's two main things that every scholar and every writer, every historian, every uh, biblical commentary would say there, there's, there's two things being revealed about Jesus in this story, two main categories. It's that he's all-powerful and that he's all-caring. He's all-powerful and he's all-caring and those two things, the, the all-powerful nature of Jesus and the all-caring nature of Jesus, are not mutually exclusive. And it's actually the marriage of those things, the tension of those things, existing together in their fullness, not to the detriment of each other. Jesus being all-powerful and all-caring at the same time is actually what makes him Jesus. It's actually what makes him the beautiful son of God that he claims to be, is that he can actually hold both things fully at the same time. He's powerful and he cares. That is our Jesus. So we're gonna walk through this story and we'll, we'll look almost like line by line. We're gonna kind of walk through this experience. We're gonna try to get in the boat with the disciples. We're gonna try to experience it with them and understand it as they understood it and then get into the receiving of Jesus' words that he had for them that he may have for us too. So we're kind of gonna walk through it with those two things in the background. He's revealing that he is all powerful and that he's all caring at the same time. So the storm hits. 
We're told that the boat begins filling with water and that the disciples were, verse 23, were in danger. It's important that Luke notes this for us. All the gospel writers do that tell this story. They are not in imaginary danger. They are actually in danger. This storm will actually kill them. It's important to note that the disciples are not overestimating their fears. It's important to note that they are not overestimating the circumstances. This is real danger. They are actually scared for their lives. They are actually afraid. This, Jesus doesn't wake up and say to them, this storm wasn't gonna do anything to you. Why'd you wake me up? I was having a good nap. This is actually a storm that will actually kill them and their, their boat is beginning to take on water. They are actually in danger. They're afraid. What are you afraid of? Well, my help to define this first. What is fear? Fear is what we experience. I'll use an I statement, group guidelines for small groups. Uh, fear is what I experience when I face something greater than the resources I have. Fear is the experience of facing something greater than the resources that one has. So because that's the definition, I can be afraid of anything. Anything can cause me to feel like I'm facing something or may face something that I don't have the resources to face. So I can be afraid of failing because if I fail, I would have to live in a reality that makes me feel inadequate for what I want to do or what I feel like I'm supposed to do. So failure, the fear of failure, failing would create a reality that I don't have the resources enough to face that reality. So I'm afraid of it. I can be afraid of being found out, that if you really knew who I am, um, then you maybe wouldn't think the same thing about me, and now I can't control what you think about me, and that's something that I don't have the resources to face. So I'm afraid of being found out because that reality is something that I don't have the resources to face, which is not being able to control what you think about me. I can be afraid of pain, because I don't have the resources to face a life of constant pain or tragedy or sorrow. So I can live in fear of that, because if I face a life of pain, then I won't have the resources to face the pain constantly. I can be afraid of death, because I can't control when that may happen or who that might happen to. I can be afraid of not having enough money, because then if I don't have enough money, then I won't have the resources to face life without money to pay the bills and to provide so maybe, I mean, those are mine. Would you like to keep going? We have a buffet of them if you'd like. Um, you have your own. You can maybe relate to some of them uh, that I listed. But here's the funny thing about fear. Funny, not haha, but painfully funny thing about fear is that we actually aren't skilled enough. We're actually not um, infinite enough. We're not talented enough to contain our fear. And here's what I mean about that. If I begin to feed my little pet fear of fearing being found out or feed my little pet fear, fear of not having enough money, I'm actually unable, I'm not skilled enough to keep it honed in on only that area. I will become afraid of any host of things and it will begin to manifest itself in worry and anxiety because I can't keep my fear contained. I can be afraid of anything. And because I can't contain my fear, then I can become afraid of almost everything. My, my status can become so fragile that almost any interaction can be a threat because I'm not good at just maintaining or containing my fear. And so let's camp here for just a moment. If we're not good at containing or maintaining our fear, that once I begin to obey my fears and listen to my fears, then fear begins to infiltrate everything. 
If you know what you're afraid of, let's, let's go a little bit deeper here. Let's go like one layer down because Jesus is going there. The disciples are already there. We're going we're gonna to get to this. Do you know why you're afraid of the things you're afraid of? Like if all the things that I just stated, money, failure, found out, death, pain, whatever, done talking about me. If, we're, if, if, we're, if all those things are just trailhead fears, like that's where you get on the trailhead of fear as you climb to the mountaintop of, uh, of fear. Um, whatever your trailhead fear is, whatever the, like the surface level fear is that you could state if I said, what are you afraid of? Um, do you know why you're afraid of that thing? Like what's at the peak of that? Or, or in a different, uh, uh, let's go uh, topography, let's go down. What, what's underneath that? What are you ultimately afraid of if you're afraid of not having enough money? What are you ultimately afraid of if you're afraid of being found out? Do you know why you fear the things you fear? What's the ultimate fear driving that? One of the ways to answer that question, how do I know what I'm really afraid of, is do this. It's a thrilling exercise. Uh, play your stated fear out to its worst possible conclusion. Like roll the tape and go down into the fear fantasy that you're very comfortable in. We spend a lot of time there anyway. Play out the fear fantasy to its worst possible outcome. Our fears hate that we would do this. But imagining the worst case scenario, what's at the end of that? What's at the mountaintop of that or what's at the bottom of that well, depending on what analogy you're tracking with? What, what, what's the ultimate fear behind all of the stated fears? And here's what the Bible would say about that. At the end of that or at the top of that, the ultimate thing driving all of our other fears is really the same thing. We're actually not that different in that regardless of what our trailhead fears might be, we're actually all ultimately afraid of the same thing. What's at the end of not having enough money? What's at the end of failing? What's at the end of pain? Frozen, Elsa or Anna, what does she scream at the beginning of her? What are you so afraid of? Nobody's seen Frozen, okay. Um, imagine me as Anna screaming at you, Elsa. What are you so afraid of? What's really going on underneath that? And the Bible would say that at the end of our fear, the ultimate fear that we're really most afraid of is a deep fear of separation, punishment, and abandonment. Because if I play out my fear, just, let's just go with me for a second. If I play out my fear of being found out, then, then I can't control what you think about me. What I'm really afraid of is that you'll just leave me. And then I'll end up all alone and I'll deserve it. I'm afraid of separation, abandonment, and punishment. That is the end of the fears, and it's driving all of the fears. It's why you're afraid of not having enough money. It's why you're afraid of pain. It's why you're afraid of failing. All of it would leave you all alone, and you would know you deserve it. And so what we're really afraid of is separation, punishment, and abandonment. We actually see that in the disciples. They expose that in themselves with the way they handle this storm fear comes out in their words. When they go and wake Jesus up and they're screaming at him to wake up, they declare something to him and their declaration to him exposes what they're afraid of. Ultimately, they say to him, we are perishing. Not we're dying. It's important that we know that. We are perishing. We are experiencing and will experience utter loss and abandonment. We are perishing. We will cease to exist and we will be all alone. 
It actually comes out um, much uh, harsher in Mark's telling of this story. When they go to Jesus, Luke doesn't record these words for us. When they go to Jesus and wake him up, they don't just declare to him that we're perishing and that's what we're most afraid of. They wake Jesus up and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? Because what's happening right now to us, Jesus, is really revealing and now our question is revealing what we're most afraid of. It's having to deal with the fact that maybe God incarnate himself in Jesus doesn't even care about me. That I would be left in utter abandonment, separation, and punishment. What the disciples are revealing that they were most afraid of was the reality that God may not care about them. They're not just afraid of death. They're more afraid of the fact that maybe Jesus doesn't even care about the fact that they would die. Their circumstances are exposing what they are truly afraid of. They're declaring and accusing what to Jesus, we are perishing. Don't you freaking care? And all that is doing is exposing the deep-seated fear that's going on with them. So personal question for reflection. If you wanna use some courage this week, ask somebody that loves you this same question. How often when you're afraid do you begin declaring things and how often when you're afraid do you begin accusing people of why they're doing what they're doing? How often do you, does your fear drive declarations about what is most true, we are perishing, and how often does your fear reveal your accusations when you begin assigning motive to people, I know why they did that, when you begin ass assessing the reasons why things are happening, all that is happening, fear begins to rile all this up in us, declarations and accusations. And that is not meant to shame us, because that is so real. All that that's meant to do for all of us is understand that the disciples are just human, this is what fear does. Fear begins becoming a prophet for us. Fear begins to write the script, which is why the disciples accuse Jesus of why he's doing what he's doing. Jesus, you're asleep. We know exactly why you're asleep. You don't care. And Jesus, if you don't wake up, let me tell you how this story is going to end. We will perish. And so I wanna tread really, really lightly here, again, because this is so real. If you or people that you love, if, that is, if, that, if you would say, yep, that is what happens when I or people I love experience fear, they begin to accuse and they begin to declare. That is not meant to shame and you are not meant to just do better with the declaring and the accusing. What you're meant to do is understand, do you realize that that's just exposing what you're most afraid of? All that that is, is revealing to those around you and to you what your ultimate fear is. But we gotta be honest, it's really hard to not accuse Jesus when he seems disinterested. Because the painful reality about being on this boat with Jesus that the disciples are in, he actually was asleep. He wasn't like sleeping with one eye open, like when are they gonna come and wake me up so I can get up and do my magic? Like he actually is asleep. He was sleeping while they were drowning. Water's coming onto the boat. This is not an imagined fear. When they're in their dire moment of chaos, Jesus is sleeping. Now, that can infuriate us or that can comfort us. Because remember, the disciples weren't overestimating their circumstances. They were in real danger. But please do not miss, Jesus is not overestimating their circumstances either and he's asleep which means when Jesus looks at the thing that they're most terrified of, he's not afraid of it. 
He stayed asleep long enough for them to know that he was asleep in their storm and in their chaos. He doesn't wake up frantic. He's not like, oh shoot, I got to, I, the nap was too long, my alarm didn't go off, like I, 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 was, I meant to stop this 10 minutes ago, I didn't mean for you to be this afraid. He wakes up and he's very calm, says a few words to the, to the elements, and it's over. In their real danger, Jesus was sleeping. Here's part of the comfort that is almost too hard to receive. Your Jesus will not be hurried by the thing that you're afraid of. He will not be hurried by the pain that we are in, and he will not be hurried by the stress that we feel. He will not be hurried by the fear fantasies we create, and he may let our storms rage longer than we want him to. He doesn't apologize one bit for saying, man, I let this go too far, I'm sorry. He doesn't say, man, when the first lightning bolt hit, that was my alarm, I was supposed to wake up when it, when it struck. I didn't mean for you guys to have water start coming on the boat. They are drowning and he's asleep. Because Jesus is not afraid of the things that we're afraid of. So Jesus wakes up, and this, 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 is, this is this first point. This is the, the first revelation about who Jesus is. Jesus is all-powerful. Every scholar would agree that the primary reason why Jesus performed this miracle was to prove this first point, that he's all-powerful. Jesus wakes up, verse 24, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Book of Mark says it this way, that it was completely calm. It's like Mark trying to reiterate, no, 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 you don't understand. It didn't take like 30 minutes for the wind and the waves to die down. It was this instantaneous, completely calm. The sea was like glass, like that. And what Jesus is trying to show is that by the word of his power, he can still the elements of nature in an instant which means he rules over them. He was, the, the, the wind and the waves didn't meet their match in Jesus. Like he's over them. He's ruling over them. They get their power from him is what this story is showing. They are underneath him and he is not threatened by him. And the gospel writers want us all to know in this brief story, Jesus has that kind of power. Meaning Jesus has the power to cease the thing that you think you are most afraid of. Jesus is sitting over the thing that you think is threatening you and your peace. Jesus is ruling over the situation in your life that is causing you the most anxiety. Jesus is on the throne above the nagging thing that you can't stop worrying about or obsessing over. He is sitting above them. That's the first revelation of the story. Jesus is all-powerful. And so the waters are calmed instantly but the disciples aren't. So he rebukes the wind and the waves, and then he does his second rebuke. It's a rebuke masked in a rhetorical question. Verse 25, he turns the disciples, calms the elements of nature instantly, the storm that was threatening them, they were in real danger in. And this is what he says to them. Where is your faith? Man, it is so hard not to read um, our, the way we would say that question to people <laughs> into Jesus's tone and intonation. Please, please hear in this a loving, caring Jesus going for the roots. He is taking an ax to the root of something. 
And it's driven by his love and care. He's already shown his power, and now he's showing his care. What's going on with this question? Jesus did not say to the disciples, why didn't you have more faith in me? Like, you're, you, you got a B on the faith test. Why didn't you get an A? You needed 10 more faith points and you would have passed. He's not saying, why didn't you have more faith during the storm? He says, where is your faith? Translation, what is the object of your faith? Because Jesus knows something that's real about humanity. There is never a time when anyone in the boat or this room is not living with faith in something. Everyone is acting in faith and in trust and in dependence on something. What is the object of the faith that you have? Where is your faith? What is your faith in? No one in the room is void of faith. David Foster Wallace famously in uh, graduation speech essentially said, there's no such thing as atheism functionally because everyone is worshiping something. Translation, everyone, even if they're a stated atheist, is putting their faith in something. And Jesus here is firmly rebuking the fact that up until this point in this little mini narrative, the disciples have had lots of faith. It just wasn't in Jesus. It was in the storm. And so Jesus is challenging that to expose that, to uproot what they have been trusting in up until this point. They wake him up declaring something. They're, they're, it's like they're pointing to the scoreboard. Hey, Jesus, you're losing. The storm is winning. I think we actually trust the storm more than we trust you. They had decided who the most powerful entity in the story was, and it wasn't Jesus. Jesus, you're not winning. You need to do something about this, which their very statement to him, their question to him, don't you care that we're perishing, is all that it's doing is revealing what their faith is in. That's why Jesus goes after it. This is so important for us because they had faith in the storm, because their fear had become a prophet that they were listening to. They were not only believing that the storm was more powerful than Jesus, they were believing that if the storm is more powerful than Jesus, uh-oh, Jesus, you must not care about us. They don't wake him up just saying, please do something about this storm. They wake him up accusing him, declaring to him their actual theology and what they actually believe about him. They are saying to him, this storm is incompatible with being a follower of you. This storm should not exist if we're actually with you. Our life should not have storms, Jesus, if we're with you. So wake up and do something because the storm means to us that maybe you're not all that good. Maybe you're not all that trustworthy. Maybe you're not who you say you are. And maybe I don't even want to trust you. If you care, Jesus, you wouldn't let this happen. And if you let this happen, you don't care. That's what's going on. They say to him, why are you asleep during this storm? It must be that either you can't handle the storm, and if you can handle the storm and you're not doing anything about it, you don't care about us. If you care, Jesus, you would stop it. If you don't stop it, you don't care. The care and love of Jesus in their minds should be incompatible with life-threatening, difficult, terrible things going on in their life. They are defining the love of Jesus based on their current circumstances. Your love, Jesus, should equal us not going through life-threatening things. That's what they're stating with their question and with their declaration. We do the same thing. 
when suffering hits our life, we turn around and we use the suffering as proof that Jesus must not care about us. It's so natural. It's, and by the way, it's not a modern invention. We've been doing it since Jesus got here. It's what's happening in the boat. If life is hard and Jesus, you could stop the hard, then you don't care about me. And here's, here's what I want to be very uh, clear but gentle with. Jesus will have none of that. It's a rare moment for Jesus in the boat. Because all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is so full of compassion and patience. Woman at the well, he sits with her and he's, he's diving into her well and getting into her heart. Talking about her sin. When he sees the crowds over Jerusalem, he says he's full of compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He, he's, he, it's with Mary and Martha at the funeral of their brother Lazarus, he, he's weeping with them. Like He is notoriously patient and empathetic and understanding. Not here. Here in the boat with his disciples, he, is, he shows not one shred of sympathy or empathy or patience with his disciples because his disciples are defining his love for them based on the problems and pain and fears of their life and he will not allow it because he loves them. This is what drives the question from Jesus. Where's your faith? Do not miss the fact that that is a stern rebuke from Jesus. Is your faith in the storm and what you are allowing the storm to say about me and my heart towards you? Or is your faith in me and what I've already proven to you and promised to you that I came to do for you? You're gonna use this finite temporary storm as proof to yourself and your whole world that I don't love you and care about you? Where is your faith? You are trusting in something and giving faith to something and then letting that thing tell you who I am? I will not allow that because I love you. If you start with a premise, if you start with the premise that Jesus is love and care cannot allow for storms to come into your life, then all of your conclusions about Jesus will be wrong. And so what Jesus is doing with this little rebuke of a rhetorical question is he's starting with the premise. You are believing about me that storms can't exist when I'm with you. And I'm here to uproot all of that because you're letting that faith tell you something about me. And he goes after it with an ax. And then we get to the end of the story. It's maybe the most depressing slash liberating part of the whole story. At the very end of the story, look at how the disciples react at the very end of the story. Verse 25, and they were afraid and marveled at him saying, who is this Jesus? After all this, like we're afraid, we're perishing. What's wrong with you? Miracle, calm, instant glass, rebuke question. We would love for the ending of this to say, and they skipped away with butterflies and strawberries and, and they never had any fear ever again. <laughs> the disciples are still afraid. They're just afraid of something else now. See, because when God shows up and exposes not only our fears, shows what we're actually afraid of, and then he shows himself to be above those fears and not afraid of them and to have power over them, 
Getting back to our original definition of fear, we've definitely found something greater than the resources we currently have. Like you might have thought you were afraid of a storm. What about the guy that's not afraid of the storm? You thought you were perishing and you thought you were afraid that maybe Jesus didn't love you. What about the guy that was sleeping during all that? Jesus is not afraid of the things that I'm terrified of. And that is terrifying. See, sometimes God's solutions to our fears is more terrifying than the original fear. Sometimes the help God gives, sometimes the the rescue God goes through to get us, sometimes what he puts us through in order to get us out of our fears and our problems is more terrifying than the problem was. Like, is what you want in your fear, honestly, isn't what we all want in our fears is to have no more fear? Like, what, what, can we all just be honest? I don't like being afraid. And so I think that if Jesus wants to alleviate my fears, he'll just rid me of all my fears. Like, I want to walk away from fearful storylines and fearful seasons thinking that, man, I just don't have any fear anymore. But what if the end of our fear was not no fear? What if the end of our fear was being afraid of the right thing or the right one? The disciples show this. When they're in the storm that they're drowning in, they're scared. When they see the Jesus who's asleep during their storm and more powerful than their storm, they're terrified. See, we would love to believe that peace exists without any fear, but the biblical concept is that peace exists when fear is in the right place. Only when there's fear of the Lord can we have any peace. But it is not void of fear. Several years ago, when I started this role, I was terrified. I was really afraid of this job. I was afraid of letting people down. I was afraid of failing. I was afraid of... um, turning into an unhealthy pastor that I have lots of history with and sorrow from. I was afraid of lots of things. I was afraid of not being enough, of not having the resources to face the situation that I was in. I was terrified of it. And then the Lord tore my ACL, several other parts of my leg. And I couldn't walk, and I couldn't be needed, and I couldn't fix anybody, much less myself, And I was forced to slow down for long enough to look in the mirror and see the man that I had become running around trying to alleviate my fear of this role by being enough for this role. And what the Lord took me through was way scarier than what I thought I was originally afraid of. I thought I was afraid of failing. I had no idea that I was gonna have to look myself long in the mirror and have to realize I'm not just afraid of failing, I'm afraid of everything, and I've been trying my whole life to cover up lots of things by believing that I can just work hard enough and be something enough to have the thing that I won't ever be afraid of anything. And then I had to deal with a Jesus who down to my bones, ligaments for the sake of the ACL, uh, down like deep into me had to actually expose the reality that you aren't enough for the thing that I've called you to, and I've still called you to it. Because you're not enough for it, but I am. And the fact that he would tear my ACL and put me up in a bed for a month knowing I'm an Enneagram 7 and that's called hell on earth, that I I couldn't move for a long time, um, he was gonna have to slow me down long enough. He would tear my leg up to get that into me. That is scary. What do I do with a Jesus that isn't afraid of my fear of failure? (laughs) 
actually wants me to actually be okay experiencing that, and he'll tear my leg up to do so. Don't have the resources to face that guy. Don't have what it takes to not be afraid of that guy. See, fear is facing something that is greater than the resources I have. But fear of the Lord is facing someone that is greater than the resources I have and then resting in the reality that I belong to him. And that's the only place where there's any peace. It's the only place where there's any respite from the fear. It's not void of fear. It's just being afraid of the right things. There is someone more powerful than the thing I'm afraid of. And so Luke here is trying to show his power and his care. He's showing this power by saying to you, do you not know that this Jesus of Nazareth is also the Lord of creation? Do you not know that this Jesus of Nazareth, in one word, can still the elements of nature? He has the power to stop any storm. He has the power to calm any waves. He has the power to cease any rain and scatter any darkness. He is more powerful than the thing you are afraid of, and he's not afraid of the things that you're afraid of. And this Jesus of Nazareth, who is also the Lord of creation, that has all of that power, what struck the disciples and should strike us too is that in just a few years from this moment in the boat, this same Jesus of Nazareth, who was also the Lord of creation, would go and face another storm. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's facing the storm, the cosmic storm of God's wrath, and he knows what he's about to face Jesus knew the storm that he would face, was facing, would perish him. Jesus, he he understood all the depths of fear and ultimate fears. Here's what Jesus knew in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm about to face something that will speak to my greatest fear. I'm about to walk into something that will speak to the ultimate place of fear of abandonment, fear of punishment, and fear of separation. Jesus knew that the storm of God's wrath would make all those things real for him. He would have to experience utter abandonment, utter separation, and utter punishment. And the Lord of creation allowed himself to be drowned in that storm. The Lord of creation submitted himself to the storm of God's wrath. He didn't calm it. He let it rage. He let himself be drowned in the far greater storm. John chapter 10, Jesus tells the parable, the good shepherd, I am the good shepherd, I come for my sheep and I lay my life down for them. And then he says, he just clears all this up at the end of John 10. I love, I'm like, is it, was anyone asking about that or did you just feel the need to say it? Because he just says, hey, good, good shepherd parable, you need to know the shepherd that lays down his life for his sheep, I am the good shepherd and no one takes my life from me. I have autonomy, I have the authority to lay my life down. No one is taking my life from me, but here, newsflash, good newsflash, I do it of my own accord. I have all the power in the universe, and guess what I'm choosing to do with that power? Lay my life down for you. This this collision of, of power and humility, the collision of authority and servanthood, the collision of autonomous self-sacrifice is what makes the majestic Jesus beautiful because you've never met anybody like him that is all-powerful and all-caring at the same time. He's the Lord of the storms that also let himself be swallowed up by the ultimate storm for your sake. I imagine in this boat when he's with the disciples, 
And they come at him with this accusation and this declaration. Don't you care that we're perishing? I have to imagine using my biblically redeemed imagination as I read scripture, that I have to imagine that somewhere there was a twinge in Jesus. He hears the accusation, don't you care that we're perishing? That he would say back to them, don't you know I came to perish for you? Like I know you're afraid of this finite momentary storm. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I came to be swallowed up by a much greater storm that I'm gonna start to drown and I'm not gonna get out? Don't you know that there's a storm that's coming for me and I'm gonna drown in it so that you won't have to? So I don't know why you're suffering. I don't know why he's letting the winds and the waves rage longer than you want him to. I don't know why he let a tornado hit this city. But I know who he is. And in knowing who Jesus is, it's the only place that all of our ultimate fears the ultimate fears that drive every other fear, knowing who Jesus is is the only place that you will have any peace from your ultimate fears, fears of abandonment, punishment, and separation. In knowing who Jesus is, he puts our ultimate fears to rest still as glass like that. The work of Jesus guarantees forever that God will never punish you the work of Jesus guarantees forever that he will never abandon you. And the work of Jesus guarantees forever that nothing can separate you from his love. And so the disciples end in the rightful place, which is fear of the Lord. And so majestically and, and, and beautifully, fear of the Lord is the only place where there's any peace. But it gets just a little bit better for the disciples and for us, and it's this. It's that in the middle of the storms that are threatening them, and the Lord of creation, Jesus, is in, them, is in the boat with them too. Like, please don't miss this. Yes, he's sleeping, but his sleeping is not an offense. It should be a comfort. He's with you, and he's not afraid. He hasn't left, he's with them before the storm, he's with them during the storm, and he's with them after the storm. He is with them in their storms. Yes, Jesus will not be hurried by our storms. Yes, Jesus will not allow us to accuse his heart based on our suffering. But at the same time, that same Jesus never leaves them. He's actually so at peace himself that he'll go to sleep on your boat and you can actually sleep with him. Like you can rest with him because he's not afraid of the things that you're afraid of. He never left them and he won't leave you either. This, this is why I'll close with this. One of the greatest um, pieces of any historical document is the opening question of what's known as the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer of theology. What Christian is your only hope in life and in death? And the answer is that I belong both body and soul, to my loving Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the only comfort. It's not one of the comforts. It's the only comfort that you have that the Lord of the creation is with you on your boat, and he's not afraid. He is with you in your storm. Let's pray. Jesus, our town um, has lots of questions about you. And may we be a people who so know Jesus to be in our boat with us that we would be the aroma of Christ to this city, 
that runs into destruction to restore it, that comforts those who are weeping, and that seeks to rebuild that which was lost. So whether we experience the physical tornado or a spiritual tornado this week or some combination of both, may our questions not keep us from seeing you, we pray. Because you, O oh Jesus, have not only quieted our ultimate storm, you have not left us in ours. Let's call us in your name, Jesus. Amen.